activities. It's a great privilege to be able to speak here at SMAC today. And today we'll be continuing our series in Matthew, looking at verses 17 to 34 of chapter 20. It's on page 995 of your Bibles, and it would be great if you could have that open as we go through. There's also an outline on the inside of one of the sheets you were given, and you can use that either to follow what I'm saying or or to take notes. But before we begin, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your work. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. Speak to us today, Father. Change our hearts and give us wills ready to obey you. For your name's sake. Amen. During the 19th century, the Emperor of France, Napoleon Bonaparte, invaded Austria. The Austrians and Russians joined forces to try and push the invading French back. Unfortunately, there was a misunderstanding. At the time, the Russians and the Austrians had different calendars. The Russian calendar was more than ten days later than the Austrian calendar. As a result, the Russians arrived ten days late, or from their perspective, the Austrians were ten days early. But either way, the Austrian capital, Vienna, fell to the invading French forces. 500 Austrian guns were lost, and thousands of troops were captured, all because of a misunderstanding. Misunderstandings can have serious consequences. In the passage we're looking at today, the disciples completely misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They don't understand the implication of Jesus' death. While he speaks about his death, they worry about the exact position or status they'll receive in the kingdom. They ignore what he has to say about his death, and that's really serious. Because when they fail to understand Jesus' death, they'll also get the wrong idea about how to live as his followers. And it's the same for us. If we fail to understand Jesus' death, we too won't know how to live as his followers. The cross is the central event of the Christian faith. It's at the cross where forgiveness has been won for us. It's at the cross where we see God's character most clearly revealed. The example of Jesus on the cross shows us how followers of him should live. So if we don't understand the cross, we will never follow Jesus in the way that he wants. And that's a serious misunderstanding. We'll be looking at the passage today in three parts. First, we'll see in verses 17 to 19, that Jesus must die. Second, in verses 20 to 38, 20 to 28, we'll see two implications of his death. And finally, in verses 29 to 34, we'll see a right request. Mercy, not greatness. Let's start at verses 17 to 19, where we see that Jesus must die. Jesus and his followers are travelling on the road to Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that Jerusalem would be the place where the Messiah, the Christ, would establish his kingdom on earth. God's kingdom on earth. Maybe the disciples were expecting this. Maybe they thought that Jesus would lead a revolution and drive out the occupying Roman armies. Jesus' words soon confound these expectations. 
Look at what he says in verses 18 and 19. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. That's a name we saw in the Old. Te- that's a name we saw in the Old Testament passage we looked at earlier. The Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days. That's God, and God gives him a dominion, dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. All peoples and nations and languages serve him. That's the picture that we get of the Son of Man in the Old Testament. Someone who is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom where everyone serves him. Now the disciples may not have understood Jesus' reference to the Son of Man, but they did know that he was the Christ. They would have been shocked. By this time they, they believed that Jesus was the Christ, and in their view, Christ could never die the death that Jesus is, is describing here. For the disciples, the Christ was supposed to be the victorious Messiah, establishing God's kingdom on earth and punishing his enemies not dying a humiliating death on the cross after being mocked and flogged. But Jesus contradicts their expectations. Rather than being given dominion, the Son of Man will be given over to his enemies. Rather than ruling a kingdom of all nations, he would be handed over to all nations as a criminal. Rather than receiving glory, he would suffer the greatest indignity, being mocked, flogged and finally crucified. Now we don't know how the disciples responded to this at first. Maybe the reason that Matthew doesn't record their response is because they were so shocked. Shocked at Jesus' picture of the Christ that completely turned their own ideas upside down. But what is Jesus trying to teach his disciples here? Is Jesus contradicting the Old Testament? Is he saying that actually the Son of Man isn't going to be given glory but will just suffer instead? Well, if we take a closer look at the passage, that's not quite what Jesus is saying. Look at the end of verse 19. The Son of Man will be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. You see, Jesus isn't teaching that the Son of Man won't receive dominion, glory, and honour. But that first, he must suffer. Only after he suffered mockery, flogging, and death, will he receive glory by rising again three days later. The Son of Man must suffer first. Only then will he receive glory. Jesus must pass through the agony of the cross before he gets the dominion and glory prophesied in Daniel 7. Suffering comes first. Glory comes later. So we've seen that Jesus must die. Verses 20 to 28 will see two implications of his death. Suffering before glory and service before greatness. Suffering before glory and service before greatness. In verse 20, the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus and asks, her, asks him for something. I'll read from verse 21. And Jesus said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your kingdom. Now she's doing what all mothers like to do, isn't she? She's looking after the welfare of her boys. 
Perhaps all this talk about the first thing last in the sermon we heard last week, perhaps that had worried her, and she needed a bit of reassurance. She needed reassurance that her sons would still be in Jesus' inner circle. She wants her sons to have the best seats in the house, to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, to be next to the king himself. And James and John want it too. They're with her mother, they're with their mother, and she makes her request. Jesus replies in verse 22, You do not know what you ask. You're asking, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? Jesus makes it clear that they haven't understood him. They have no idea what he's just said. And the question Jesus asks shows us what they haven't understood. Can you drink the cup that I am to drink? So what is this cup that Jesus is going to drink? Well, given what Jesus has just said in verses 17 to 19, the cup that he must drink is his death. Jesus' cup is the agony and suffering he will endure as he dies on the cross. The cross is the cup that Jesus will drink. So the answer to Jesus' question is no. James and John, they can't drink Jesus' cup. They can't follow him to the cross. And they don't They don't follow him to the cross, do they? When Jesus is crucified, James and John are nowhere to be seen. They abandon their master, unable to face his suffering. But what does this have to do with the question their mother asked earlier? How does it answer her request for her sons to sit on the right and left of Jesus in his kingdom? Well, remember what we saw earlier. Before Jesus enters the glory that is his due, he must first suffer. Only after accomplishing his mission, the reason he came to earth, will Jesus enter his kingdom as the glorious Son of Man. Suffering comes first, glory comes later. And what's true of Christ is true for all his followers. Jesus' followers will only enter the kingdom after they've suffered on earth. Suffered for being his followers. Now, that doesn't mean we have to somehow earn our entry into heaven by somehow suffering lots and lots. We can never earn our place in heaven. But because we are followers of Jesus, we will suffer, just like he did. We can't avoid that as Christians. We will face suffering in the world. The world rejected Jesus. They will do the same to us if we are truly seeking to follow him. This is what James and John didn't understand. They wanted a place to him, next to him in his kingdom, but they didn't understand the implication of Jesus' death. They thought they could jump straight into glory without facing suffering. But they were wrong. To be sure of attaining the positions they wanted, seated on the right and left of Jesus, they would have to drink his cup to go with him to the cross. To be side by side with him in his kingdom, they'd have to be side by side with him in his death. And as we know from the end of the Gospel, all the disciples deserted him, unable to face his suffering, unable to drink the cup that he drank. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, James and John, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. Replying to his question about whether they can drink his cup, they say in verse 22, We are able, confident in themselves that they can do whatever it takes to gain the greatness that they want in the kingdom. Now, we've already seen that they can't do that. They can't go to the cross with Jesus. They can't drink his cup. But Jesus doesn't say this. Instead, in verse 23, he says, 
You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus had just said that they can't drink his cup, in the sense of following him to his death on the cross. But there is a way that they will drink his cup. Just like him, they will suffer before entering the glory of his kingdom. We know that this is true from the lives of James and John. After Jesus' death and resurrection, they were faithful followers of Christ, suffering persecution for him. James was martyred by King Herod, and John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Although they didn't die with Jesus, they did drink his cup, suffering for him before entering his kingdom. Jesus is telling them here that like him, just like he did, they would suffer before they enter the kingdom. Whether they would be on the right and the left is not Jesus' decision. Only the Father can say he will sit next to Jesus in heaven. So that's Jesus' answer to their question. Before entering the glory of heaven, James and John will suffer first. Just like Jesus, followers of Jesus will suffer before they enter the kingdom. What position we have there is up to God. Now it's at this point that the rest of the disciples appear. They've obviously overheard what James and John have been asking, and they're absolutely furious. They can't believe what they've just heard. How dare James and John be so arrogant? But their anger isn't with right motives. They're not angry with the brothers because they're humble and realise what an inappropriate question has been asked. They're angry with James and John because they got there first. Now, it's like when your football team loses. You know, if you're a Charlton supporter like uh, Gordon is, that's happening quite a lot these days. Um, it's like when your football team loses. What do you do when your football team loses? You blame the referee, don't you? You say, that penalty wasn't right, or he wasn't offside when he, when he was, or something like that. But you're not really annoyed with the referee, are you? You're annoyed that you've lost. And it's the same with the disciples here. They're not really annoyed with James and John for asking the question. They're annoyed with them for getting there first. They wanted the good seats in the kingdom, but James and John had beaten them to it. They were really resentful. And we know this because Jesus rebukes them as well. For like James and John, they hadn't understood the implications of what Jesus had said in verses 17 to 19. They hadn't understood the cross. And so Jesus gets them together and begins to teach them. To teach them about the nature of true greatness. I'll read from verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so with you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In these verses, Jesus gives the disciples a contrast, a contrast between how the world behaves and how they, as his followers, should behave. The key to this comparison is contrasting attitudes to greatness, that of the world's and that of Jesus' followers. Speaking of the world, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so with you. 
The world's concept of greatness is bound up with exercising authority and control. How does the world tell if someone's great? Well, by how many people they can boss around. In the world's eyes, George Bush is considered great because he has thousands of people serving him. Thousands of people whose job it is to just do his bidding, whatever he wants. It's also to do with the way you exercise this authority. In the world's eyes, the only point of having authority is so that you can use it for selfish gain. Think of someone like Robert Mugabe, the dictator of Zimbabwe, who's used his power almost entirely for his own benefit rather than the benefit of others. How does the world seek to achieve greatness? By gaining more and more power over more and more people so that they can be served. Climbing the career ladder at work, stepping on people as you get higher, bringing more and more people under your authority. And when you've reached the top, when you're the CEO of that huge multinational company, then the world acclaims you as great. Greatness in the world's eyes consists of gaining authority over as many people as possible and using that authority for selfish gain. In opposition to this worldly concept of greatness, Jesus' words are loud and clear. It shall not be so among you. Jesus' followers are not to share the world's view of greatness. But what should they do? Abandon, abandon greatness as an idea entirely? Not quite. Let me read from verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Rather than discarding greatness entirely, Jesus shows his followers what true greatness is, and in doing so, totally reverses what the world says. In Jesus' kingdom, true greatness is measured in service. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. True greatness is not about how many people serve you, how many people you can boss around. It's about serving others. Now this would have been shocking to the disciples whose idea of greatness was probably closer to the world's than it was to that of Jesus's. But Jesus's next phrase would have been even more shocking. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now slaves in the ancient world were the lowest of the low. They weren't treated as human beings but as property to be used as their owner saw fit and then discarded or sold on when they were no longer useful. To be a slave was to occupy the lowest position. Try to imagine it for yourself. Every morning you wake up knowing that you're owned by someone else. You have no rights and your sole purpose is to do what someone else wants you to do. That's how degrading it was to be a slave. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be a slave, to give up your rights, to live for the purpose of serving others. But why should followers of Jesus live like this? Let me read verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The reason behind this radical idea of greatness is the example of our king. The reason followers of Jesus should be servants and slaves is because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was the son of man. He deserved glory, dominion and a kingdom. But he, even he didn't come to earth to be served. 
he came to earth to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve to be a slave in the most costly way possible, to serve by giving his life on the cross for us, to become a slave so that through his death many people will be brought out of slavery. This is the example that Jesus gives. Jesus, the great king, the ruler of the world, dies as a slave, serving by giving his life as a ransom. And if that's what he has done, what right do his followers have to seek worldly greatness? Jesus deserved to be given all authority, all glory, all power, yet he willingly went to the cross to be great in his kingdom, to be first. His disciples must follow his example, serving and being slaves of one another. This is the attitude that every Christian should have, whether we live in first century Palestine, like the disciples, or 21st century KL, like us. True greatness in the kingdom involves serving one another, following the example of our Lord. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll find that really, really difficult. Most of us, in some way, probably want to be great and to have others see that we're great. We'd much rather have people serve us than us to serve other people. And KL culture probably doesn't help either. Greatness is considered one of the most important things. Go into a bookshop like Kinokuniya or NPH and you'll see loads of books on how to make it in business, how to gain that latest promotion. And it's the same if we're, when we have children or we're thinking of having children. Our culture will tell us that the most important thing for them is for them to be great, for them to succeed. Now I'm not saying that success and greatness are wrong and that somehow if you're in a senior position at, at work, you're somehow being sinful. No, it's primarily our attitude that this passage challenges. Is being great our number one priority? Do we see greatness in the workplace as the most important thing? If we do, then we have absorbed the attitude of the world. For the follower of Christ, service of others should be the priority, not worldly greatness. Consider Jesus, the one we follow. He was truly great, yet he came to earth, not to be served, but to serve, giving his life so that we might live. Service, not greatness, should be our number one priority. And if we are in positions of authority, let's not behave as the world behaves. Let's not use our authority the way the world uses it, to boss people around so that we can feel good about ourselves to behave as if we're the centre of the universe and everyone else below us is there to serve our desires. Let's use the authority we have to serve others. It's what Jesus our Master did when he died on the cross. So we've seen two implications of the cross. Suffering before glory and service before greatness. Finally, let's look at verses 29 to 34 where we see a right request. Mercy, not greatness. Mercy, not greatness. Jesus and his disciples continue their journey towards Jerusalem, leaving Jericho in verse 29. Let me read from verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. These two blind men are in some ways like James and John. Both recognise Jesus as the Christ. The son of David is just another way of saying that. But the similarities stop there. Unlike James and John, who seek worldly greatness, these two blind men just want mercy. It's there in verse 30, and again in verse 31. Lord, have mercy on us. They're persistent as well. When the crowd try to shut them up, they cry out even more. Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus stops and asks a familiar question. What do you want from what do you want me to do for you? We saw a similar question back in verse twenty one, when James and John's mother approached Jesus. She wanted Jesus to make her sons great, to make them first in the kingdom. But the blind men want something different. Rather than wanting worldly greatness, they just want mercy. They just want to see. Look at verse thirty three. The blind men said to Jesus, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What a contrast to the disciples. The disciples want Jesus to make them great, to give them worldly glory. The blind men just want mercy. They just want to see. They realize their need for Jesus and ask him to meet it. The most important thing to receive from Jesus is not greatness, but mercy. And it's the same for us. Like the blind men, our greatest need is for mercy. We need mercy because we are sinful, living lives that don't please God. That's why Jesus came into the world, to, make, to, make, to give his followers mercy, not to make his followers great. We must not come to Jesus like James and John did, asking him to give us worldly greatness. Our priority shouldn't be for Jesus to give us money or, or success or, or greatness. Instead, when we come to Jesus, we must do so humbly, recognising our need for mercy and relying on Jesus completely to meet that need. Mercy, not greatness, is our greatest need. And Jesus met the need when he died on the cross in our place, punished so that we might receive mercy. So that's the right request. Mercy, not greatness. We started today by thinking about misunderstandings. And we've seen a pretty large one in this passage. The disciples have failed to understand the cross. They've got it wrong in two crucial areas. First, they didn't realise that suffering comes before glory. As followers of Christ, they must, well, follow Christ. Just as Christ suffered, they too will suffer. If the master is rejected by the world, then they can't expect anything different. And it's the same for us too. As Christians, we can't expect a trouble-free life. We mustn't think that just because we're Christians, we, we won't suffer. In fact, the opposite is true. Not only do we suffer like everyone else because the world is fallen, we suffer specifically for following Jesus. It may be at work where we refuse to compromise our integrity and miss promotion as a result. It may be at home. Many Christians in Malaysia have non-Christian families with Buddhist, Hindu or even Muslim relatives. These family members often reject Christians 
because as followers of Christ they refuse to participate in the family religious ceremonies. Or maybe it's our friends who treat us badly. They ridicule us for trying to tell them the gospel. Or they get angry with us and we say no to something that we know to be wrong. Whatever it is, Christians should expect suffering because that's what happened to Jesus. The world rejected and crucified Christ as his followers. We can't expect anything different. But if you are going through suffering today, there is hope because the gospel doesn't end with Jesus' death. After three days, after three days, Jesus rose again. And we will too, if we are united to him by faith. On that day, we will dwell with Jesus in his kingdom, where there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning, and no more death. If we are Christians, we will suffer for following Christ. But we can also be sure that suffering will end on the day Jesus returns, and when we are welcomed into his perfect kingdom. The second way the disciples had misunderstood the cross was in their idea of greatness. James, John and the other disciples all wanted worldly greatness. They wanted positions of power with people serving them. They had misunderstood the cross. You see, the cross shows us what greatness truly is. Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who deserved all glory, dominion and power, humbled himself and served by giving his life as a ransom for many. Given Jesus' example, we can no longer think that greatness consists of holding positions of authority or having lots of people under our control. No, true greatness consists of serving, humbly giving up our own rights, our own positions, in order to be the servant of others, or even their slaves. Now what might this mean in practice? Or maybe try to consciously look for ways to serve other people, at home, or at work, or in church. It may be something as simple as doing chores around the house, even after we've had a busy day at work. Or doing a job at church that no one else wants to do. It may be something more serious, like looking after an elderly relative who's been sick. And if we are in positions of authority, let's try and use them to serve others. When we make a decision, let's try and think of the consequences it will have for those below us. Let's not just think about how we will be affected by it. Rather than making decisions which serve only ourselves, let's make decisions which serve others, even those who occupy the lowest of jobs. Now, service like this will almost always be costly, but whatever the cost, we know that it's worth it. Because true greatness is not about controlling people, but about service. True greatness is about serving others. So let's not be like the disciples who misunderstood the cross. Jesus' death shows us that like him we will suffer, that we cannot expect a trouble-free life just because we're Christians. Jesus' death also shows us the true nature of greatness. If Jesus, who is God himself, was willing to be crucified for our sakes, then we too must be willing to serve others. True greatness is not about having power and authority over others. It's about service, following Jesus' example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray.
Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that Jesus died on the cross for us, serving us. Father, please help us in response to this to follow his example and to serve other people. Father, please help us not to have the same attitude to the world uh, in terms of greatness. Father, would we see that true greatness consists of serving others. For your name's sake. Amen.